Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And then there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. And God said, Our second reading for today will be taken from the book of uh, Roald Dahl, Dirty Beasts, chapter one, uh, chapter 1, verse 1, The Pig. In England once there lived a big and wonderfully clever pig. To everyone it was plain that Piggy had a massive brain. He worked out sums inside his head. There was no book he hadn't read. He knew what made an airplane fly. He knew how engines worked and why. He knew all this, but in the end, one question drove him round the bend. He simply couldn't puzzle out what life was really all about. What was the reason for his birth? Why was he placed upon this earth? His giant brain went round and round. Alas, no answer could be found. Till suddenly, one wondrous night, all in a flash, he saw the light. He jumped up like a ballet dancer and yelled, By gum, I've got the answer! They want my bacon slice by slice to sell at a tremendous price. They want my tender, ju tender juicy chops to put in all the butcher's shops. They want my pork to make a roast, and that's the part that will cost the most. They want my sausages in strings. They even want my chitterlings. The butcher's shop, the carving knife, that is the reason for my life. Such thoughts as these are not designed to give a great peace of mind. Thanks be to Roald Dahl. If you don't know the end of that, he goes and kills the farmer and eats him. Sorry to ruin it for you. Um, it's quite a significant moment in life when you realize what you are and why you're here. What your purpose is on this planet, why you were created in the first place, what you're doing, where you've come from, where you're going. It's a significant moment in life. But for most people, I think, a bit like the pig, we spend a lot of our life not clearly thinking about it. It's just a niggling question in the back of our minds that we think maybe I'll get to that one, I'll, I'll get to that one day. 
but we never have clarity on it. Possibly because we fear, a bit like Mr. Pig, when we realize what we are and why we are here, it will be horrendously bad news. For the sake, the Canadian... That is a uh, <laughs> trailer for what's coming up. We fear that when we discover what we really are and why we're here, where we've come from and where we're going, it's going to be bad news for us. It's bad news in most stories that exist out there, why we are here. The secular answers, there's various different uh, ways that people try and put to you why we're here and what we are. But all of them end in bad news. I'm coming to terms with that more and more. I came to terms with that as an atheist. As I started to think about the big questions in life, why I'm here and what I am, it was horrific to realize that really I'm just the end of a production line. And there is no rhyme or reason, there's no flight or fancy, it's, there is no purpose. And I'm just ending up in a grave the same as anyone else. And it was bad news. It was bad news. But then I discovered the Bible's story and the answer to those questions of what I am and why I'm here. And I discovered it was such compelling good news that I wanted to find out whether it was true or not. Because the reality is, if it's bad news but it's true, then you just have to deal with that. And you deal with it in all sorts of different ways. Mr. Pig dealt with it by killing the farmer and living out his life, I imagine, as a mass serial killer. But we all have to deal with that bad news if it's true. But I also became convinced that the Bible story is not just good news, but it's also true. So I'm just going to introduce you to it today. Last week we started our series as we're looking at the whole Bible in 12 verses. We began with God. The only place to begin from a biblical perspective is God and knowing him. But then we move very quickly to humanity, what we are. And the answer to that actually comes in another poem. It's slightly less catchy, but it's definitely more influential, no matter how good this poem is. This poem that I'm about to read is the first one in the Bible and possibly the most important poem that's ever been written and the most influential. And it simply goes like this. I've used the NET translation for anyone who's interested because I think it picks up certain words more helpfully than the ESV. God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. It's not the most catchy of poems, but what I hope will show you is how influential, how pivotal, how important it is to be the foundation of your life so that you know what you are, why you're here, and where you're going. So what are we? And the first probably unbelievably obvious, but I think important thing to pick up from that poem is that we are created. Now, um, I've been helping with the cafe a bit, and one of my jobs that I gave myself was to try and source mugs for us. Um, now, I wasted far too much time doing it, but uh, I was horrified by the price of some mugs. They're so expensive, and why can't they just give them to us for free? But the reality is the price changes depending on whether something was factory produced or whether it was handmade. And that's a significant difference when you realize the value of something. If it's handmade versus simply from a production line, there is a big difference in value. 
the Bible says, first of all, that human beings, humanity is handmade. We are handmade by God. But handmade doesn't necessarily mean that it's valuable because it might be made by a really inept hands uh, who are rubbish at making mugs and there's going to be holes in them. But humanity, we discover as we're at the end of Genesis 1, is made by the same creator that made the heavens and the earth, the stars, the planets, every single beautiful thing that you could walk out today through St. James's Park or whatever, and you look at the glory and the wonder and the genius of the created world, and you realize that same genius created you with his hands. That is fundamental. But like I said, we're not just a, a factory produced from a production line. Because you could, you could sort of say, well, maybe Adam and Eve were handmade by God, but then they got about their business, and then everyone else is essentially just part of the reproductive um, chain. So we're not really handmade. But you'd be missing later verses in the Bible that say that we, all of us, are individually knit together in our mother's wombs all the new babies that have just emerged onto the scene at the chapel, don't know how, they all were knitted together specifically by God's own hands in their mother's wombs. Think about how Jesus describes God our Father. He says he's the God who feeds the birds personally. He goes out with the seed and gives them all of their food every single day. He clothes the flowers. I was walking through the park and the daffodils are coming out. God put those yellow little trumpets on every single plant. I don't know, yesterday, today. He does it all with his own glue. He does it perfectly. Every single flower. And then it says he cares for you even more than those. Now, what reaction should this cause in us? Well, it shouldn't be self-important. Look how valuable I am. It should be worship. And it should be self-confidence. Knowing your true value is not the reason to then go around and be proud. No, it's the reason to be humble. Because you can be humble. Because you can be so, so, so confident in your eternal value and worth that you don't need to try and prove yourself to the people around you. You can walk humbly in an attitude of gratitude, which is the song my daughter wants playing every single minute of the day at the moment. Sam Albury, brilliant writer, says, Ingratitude is actually part of the foundation of all sin. Ingratitude, not being willing to say thank you regularly, even for the small things, is part of the foundation of all sin. And I think he says this because it's really not recognizing God as your creator. It's starting to slip into some different version of God who is not personally involved in your creation and in your ongoing life. So I thought, just let's take a minute, and this is dangerous because I've had no sleep tonight, so I might just drift off, but let's take a moment just to pause with uh, Psalm 95, if we can have that one up, Emma, and just pause in your own heart and let read this resonate, and let's give thanks. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. He is the Lord, our maker. In moments like this, everyone seems to take a deeper breath than they would usually, but I think that's quite profound because it's recognizing even that breath is coming from God. 
every moment. You weren't thinking about it before, but you can now for a few seconds. Every breath that you're taking, either consciously or unconsciously, God is personally invested in, making sure with his bellows that he's pumping your lungs regularly, all the time, keeping you alive every single moment. So we're created. That's the first thing. What we are, we are created beings. Secondly, we're created together. Now, this poem, the idea that all humans are made in the image of God, this sounds blatantly obvious to most of us. But it would have sounded stupid to the other people at the time around the Israelites when this was being written. Because in other cultures around them, the kings and the ones in power were the ones who were the images of God. And then every other human being was essentially a servant of the powerful. And they existed to do the bidding of the powerful people who were the images of God. But the lay person, the normal person, was not. They were created for a different purpose. This is unbelievable because it flattens everything and it says every human being on the planet, the, the rich and the poor, the powerful and those with no power at all, are all made in the image of God. Now, the kings still had more authority, but they had no more dignity than the slaves in the societies that they were in. This was the teaching that radicalized first Israel and then radicalized the West as the message of Christianity spread. It became the basis of civil rights, women's rights, child protection, caring for refugees, our legal system. It is now so ingrained that almost everyone in the West would just take it as obvious that, well, of course, everyone deserves equal human rights because we're all made in the image of God. But we do have to remember that belief, that conviction, comes only from the Bible. It doesn't come just out of the air, and it doesn't come from inside of us. I was watching a TED talk, Yuval Noah Harari, who's written quite influential books in the secular world. He points out, if you, or he says very clearly, if you cut a human open, you don't find human rights inside of them. Inside of them. It's, he says it's a made-up story. Now, if the belief is that this is actually a made-up story and we've got no tangible way of believing that there are such things as real human rights, equal for everyone, then where's society going to drift? Where is it going to go? Because if you go further away from this story, as you drift and as you move away from believing this reality, that the reason that we all have equal human rights is because we're made in the image of God, all exactly the same, if you drift from that, then you're drifting into very, very dangerous territory. We see it at the moment. There are laws about when you can abort a baby up until, which even that we have spoken about uh, numerous times about abortion anyway. But just for this sake, the, the laws are that people are campaigning again at the moment. Um, up to a certain level, you can abort a fetus, but after you can't unless they have Down syndrome or other conditions, and then you can. Now, understandably, the society of people with Down syndrome and those who know them and care are fighting against this because what does that law imply? It implies that they are lesser beings, they have less value than those who are making the decisions. It is an us and them situation. It is the powerful making a decision about those who don't have power, and saying that their lives are worth less. 
That's the way that we're going to be going. As you move away from this story, believing that all human beings are made in the image of God, who is going to decide? Who in society gets to decide the value of different human beings? It's going to be the powerful. And that was what God was fighting against right at the beginning when he reinforced again and again to the Israelites, this is the truth about all human beings. No matter how big or small, no matter how developed or primitive they are, this is the reality that we have to grasp. So in a progressive society, it is not progressive to move away from this story. But then we should address the um, sort of linchpin or the, the, the point in this where our society would really push back, where we, they would say is not progressive in the slightest, and that's the Christian teaching on gender. Now, just at the outset of this, firstly, I, I would say I can't say everything at all on this in a talk where I'm trying to cover a whole load of things. There are fantastic resources you can go further into this, and I'd be more than happy to point you in the direction of those, where we could either talk about them or you can read things for yourselves. There's great documents out there. But I would say, first of all, on the teaching about gender, maleness, femaleness, sexuality, whatever it is, do try and distinguish between Christian teaching and Christian's teaching. Because the Christian teaching is that God created gender as well as sex. But the Christian teaching is not that God created gender stereotypes. And I think that's important. God created gender. God didn't create gender stereotypes. Humans have done that. So God gives gender. And the Bible says that it is primarily communicated to us by our biological sex. But he doesn't give us bigoted, narrow definitions of what men and women should do, should feel, should act, should be in society. There is a whole load more freedom in the Bible than often in churches. And I would say not just in churches. I was watching a documentary by Louis Theroux, who I think is fantastic, but he is a big spokesperson for certain liberal um, ideas. It was a documentary about young, uh, young children tra transitioning uh, from one gender to another. And the tragedy, well, there were so many tragedies in it, but the tragedy that just stood out so blatantly was that the explanation that was given from the children and from the parents as to why that child should transition, it was based on their preference of color, their preference of toys, their preference of clothes. Now, if that is the primitive story that we're believing about what it means to be male or female, then of course we should eradicate that. It's horrific. It's so simplistic. It's so empty. It's so narrow. And that is the story about what it means to be male or female or whatever any of these topics are that largely the secular is pushing and societies around us have always pushed. The Bible's version of the story is incredibly profound. It's complex. It's layered. It's deep. It's thought through. It's consistent. It's beautiful. And I would really encourage you to immerse yourself in it and discover the Bible's story about these things rather than taking a very superficial version of it that our societies would preach. 
And here's a question just to introduce you on the topic. What was the first thing in the garden, in God's creation, that he said was not good? The first thing that God, having got a, a brilliant run of good, 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 very good, we're then introduced to the idea that there is something not good in the garden. That thing that's not good is man on his own. That was the first thing that God reviewed and said, ah, that's not good. Because God had not finished producing his image when he made Adam. As you can see from the poem, there is this consistent line of God created in his image, in his image, and then that phrase is replaced in the third line by male and female. The image of God on this earth, how God is represented on earth, is by male and female, is humanity as male and female. And I just love this, how it's compared. If you, again, if you've read the whole of Genesis chapter 1 before, you've got the day and the night, you've got heaven and earth, you've got sea and land, and then you've got male and female. It's so poetic, it's so profound, it's built into the very basis of creation, this idea of maleness and femaleness. It's unbelievably beautiful. And it's fundamental not just to understanding the world that we live in and the very existence of all of us, but it's also fundamental to understanding God. Because what's the big storyline of Scripture? It's a marriage between a man and a woman. Jesus, the Son of God, and his bride, the church. That is the overarching storyline from beginning to end. The, bring, the coming together of male and female. So that's just an introduction, I would say. Men and women together are the image of God. And I love the definition that you can find of what it means to complement someone uh, or something. Not complement, complement. Men and women, it says in the Bible, complement each other. They fill up, complete, or make better or perfect. Because the point of humanity, male and female, was that they were meant to rule the world together in joint ownership. Not one of them rule it, the other one just tag along for the ride. Together, that is how we get wholeness of creation and everything else. That is how we rule this world, is male and female. And this leads me to why we exist. So what we are, we are created male and female. Why we exist is to rule the world. But as what? And this is my second question for you. Have you ever noticed that God disobeys one of the Ten Commandments? Which one does he disobey? The second commandment is, do not make any images of anything in heaven. But right at the beginning of the Bible, God creates an image of himself. A heavenly being creates an image of himself. And I think this leads us to a profound truth. Because the surrounding religions of the time... They had their temples, and in their temples, they had their gods constructed out of wood or stone or something like that. The statue that represented the god that was unseen, the god that no one could see, was represented by a physical statue right there in the middle of the temple. Now, the way that the creation story is described in Genesis is describing gods creating a cosmic temple. The whole universe is his temple. 
And then he creates a statue version of himself, an image of himself, and that is humanity right there in the middle. So we are described as the idols of God. That word image, don't make, uh, God made them in his image, as you go further into the Bible, that same word is used of the physical stone idols that were in other temples that got smashed. So God has made an idol of himself, and that is humanity, which I think is a beautiful definition and explanation of what we are. But what I find maybe even more remarkable is that he didn't create Adam and Eve, humanity, as the finished product. He didn't make them as static statues that were beautiful to just decorate the place. But he actually made them very good. But have you ever noticed that Adam and Eve lacked a huge amount? What did they lack? They lacked maturity. They lacked wisdom. They lacked experience. They lacked children. And they lacked clothes. Later on in the Bible, all of these things are used to describe someone's glory and someone's honor. And so God created Adam and Eve very good, but not yet glorious. Because he wanted them to live out a calling with him as their father, to go and rule the world together, and to experience what he experienced as he created the universe in, the earlier, uh, in that earlier part of Genesis chapter 1. So he is like the most doting and loving father who really wants his children to do well and sets them up with the perfect, perfect opportunity to go now and flourish and to gain glory and honor as they go out and glorify him. That's the kind of God we worship. One that actually, as we do what he's called us to do, and we glorify him, we also experience glory and honor. If you can go to Michael Eaton's quote, Michael Eaton, a fantastic theologian and preacher, he says things. He says, this is why he finds it more helpful to translate um, this verse as God made man as his image rather than in his image, because in his image implies staticness, like a statue, just in his image, right, stood there like that. But as his image implies purpose. As his image says, I've, I've created these things as my representatives to go and do a whole load of stuff that I've already done. So it implies not passivity, but purpose and people who are packed full of potential. But then he goes on to say this, in God's plan, it was intended that men and women should get to be crowned with glory and honor by their loyalty and obedience to God. That was the plan for Adam and Eve. They were meant to say no to the snake, become stronger, wiser, to extend the garden across the whole world, to multiply and to grow in stature, and as they're doing all this, receive ever-increasing glory and honor from God as they inherit everything that he's already set up for them to have. So they were in prime position, packed full of the right potential to go and rule the world with God, glorifying him and receiving glory and honor in the process. But what did they do? This is where you get that video that uh, was trailered earlier. for the states. The Canadians in lane two and three together could push out 
Jacobellis and Frieden. It's a good start. Jacobellis and Mayel Ricker in the lead at the moment. An incredible start from Tanya Frieden, though. It's Frieden and Jacobellis out in front. The two Canadians at the back. Ricker, Mayel Ricker is going to struggle now to get the speed. Jacobellis looking very sure now to make it a one, two, three on American. Oh, Mayel Ricker going straight through the fence on the back of the A32. Ibrahimovic now for Lindsay Jacobellis, a seemingly uncatchable lead as she comes through. It looks like we've got gold and silver sewn up. Mayel Ricker in the fence is not going to be able to recover in time. Very, very unfortunate for her. This is a lap of honour for Lindsay Jacobellis. The Americans back. Oh, drama! Jacobellis is down! Oh, look at her! This is incredible! Freedom! Freedom! Unbelievable! Lindsay Jacobellis has thrown a gold medal away in the last 100 metres. Oh, what has happened? How did you feel when Lindsay Jacobellis lived with me since 2006? How did you feel when you saw that in your gut? Everything primed for success. Perf God wiped out that other rider into the fence. Like she was perfectly poised for the thing that she was created for. Now think how the angels felt in their gut when they saw humanity fall even more catastrophically than that. And not just lose a gold medal, but lose their place in the garden, lose their place in the presence of God. Not just Adam and Eve, but for every human being that would come after them. Lo losing all of that potential glory for that one grab that one moment of premature pride, trying to grab and to do something that would put them, I don't know, give them a bit more status, that moment le led to the most catastrophic fall. And for me, this really helps to explain that verse in Romans 3.23 where it says this, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I'd always read that as simply, none of us have glorified God enough. And that is true. But it is also speaking about what we lost, i.e. what we were set up for, what humanity was meant for, was to glorify God in our lives and to receive glory and honor in the process and to experience the glory of God in our lives. And all of us have fallen short of that fallen short of what it feels like to wear a gold medal round your neck and to genuinely know that you have achieved what you were set up to achieve. But the thing is, Lindsay Jacobellis, thankfully, last weekend, won her first gold medal <laughs> after 16 years. She managed to win it because she was set up to be able to keep training and going and she had another opportunity. But humanity cannot do that because every single one of us since has been born outside of the presence of God, born outside of the garden, unable to attain that glory on our own. And uh, the analogy helps, I think. Trying to gain glory for ourselves, which is essentially every human being's joint project, 
It started with the Tower of Babel, and it's carried on into almost everything that humans collectively do together, is to try and gain heavenly glory and heavenly status for themselves. But trying to do that is like trying to win a gold medal in the interim years when the Olympics are not running. It's like trying to achieve a gold medal in year two when you have to wait until the next Olympics to have a go. It's ludicrous, it's stupid, but we all try it. We all try and regain that glory on our own. But the Bible story is that we simply needed to wait. We didn't need to try to do it ourselves. We had to wait because God had already promised to do it for us. When Lindsay won last weekend, I was listening. It's the same commentator. He's such a good commentator. Um, and uh, he was screaming the one word, redemption. She has redeemed herself. And I think, again, it's the idea that our society, our culture, can't lose this story. The only way to regain glory is through redemption. That's the only way that you can regain the glory that you were meant for is through redemption. But we could not redeem ourselves. Just imagine this as a silly scenario that would never happen. Imagine that your toilet starts to leak, not in a horrible way, just in a light, some water coming out bit. And your way of fixing the toilet as an expert is just to put one towel there and then replace the towel and then replace the towel and then replace the towel for a few days. Because that is ultimately going to fix the toilet. Now imagine uh, if um, your wife thought that this was a stupid idea and called a plumber in to actually fix the toilet. And you started getting a bit grumpy because your wife doesn't trust you and your wife thinks that your solution wasn't very good. And you get a bit proud and think that they have just undermined you. Imagine if that were to happen, um, how ludicrous and stupid it would be. That is a bit like us trying to climb back into heaven and regain the glory because God came from heaven to bring us to glory. God has already come out of heaven. It's like the plumber arrives at the door and you open the door and go, no thanks, and close the door again. That is what humanity did when the Son of God, the image of God, the perfect representation of God the Father came to this earth in order to not only forgive us and cleanse us of our sin, but restore us, bring us to glory. Imagine he turned up at the door and we slammed it in his face, but we didn't just do that. Humanity as a whole strung him up on a cross and crucified him. Put him to open shame. The shame that we all feel for having lost the glory the shame that we all feel for having completely failed, to, for not being able to do that thing that we claim that we can do. We all feel ashamed for that. But imagine if our defense mechanism is to string the one up who could actually fix it, string him up on a cross and crucify him. Well, that is what we did. That is what humanity did to the Son of God who came to bring many sons to glory. But here's the incredible thing is that he knew we were going to do this and he was prepared to take that shame out of his love for his creation. So let's just read two passages from the New Testament to see what Jesus did and then we'll worship. So, uh, band, if you want to head up. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9 to 10. But we see him for a little while who was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, 
Imagine even that. You've created the angels and then you have to become a little lower than them for a period of time. Crowned now with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. Jesus is now seated in heaven on the throne, crowned with glory and honor. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. There's a lot in that, but essentially, the gracious God who wanted us, brought back into his presence and wanted us to be glorified, that's the end goal for humanity. Not only that we're justified, but that we are also sanctified and glorified. God sent his own son to bring us into that glory, but the only way that he could do it is that he got strung up on the cross instead of us. And then 2 Corinthians 3:18 gives you a verse to think about for this week. And we all now with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord. And that might sound vague, but it would just be thinking about anything that God has said to you through this message and through this, uh, whatever I've said today, chewing on it, processing it, thinking about it, beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. As Howard said last week, for the Christian, death is just the end of chapter one. And none of us can even imagine how good the words are in chapter 2. It says that the, the glory that is to come will outweigh any kind of suffering or pain or agony that you might experience. All of that will be nothing. Will be like a little paper cut compared to the weight of glory that is in chapter 2. And then imagine how good chapter 3 is going to be. And chapter 4. God is not finished writing this one. And he has predestined us to join him in that story. And I guess the only question is whether you are written into that book or not. Whether you currently have slammed the door in Jesus' face or whether it's open and you are embracing that reality for yourself. So let's stand and let's pray and let's worship him. Father, thank you so much that you didn't simply leave us outside the garden to our own devices. But you were willing to send your beloved son, the perfect image of you, the one who perfectly represents you. Thank you, Jesus, that you were willing to leave aside your glory for a period of time to become less than the angels in order to bring us to incredible, incredible glory. And you did it through the most insane of sufferings. And then thank you, Holy Spirit, that you're now the one transforming us into the likeness of the Son, Jesus Christ. Each one of us, male and female, in our own way, in the way that you have knitted us together in our mother's wombs, you are now bringing that out in us. In powerful, complex, multidimensional, multifaceted ways. You're beautiful, Lord. And as we sing, help us to behold in some sense the glory of the Lord now and be more transformed into his image. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thanks for listening to Sermon Audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.